We'll do the second session now and then uh, have a time of Q&A after that. All right, to uh, try to provide that time, I'm gonna do my best to uh, stay on point. So if you would, go ahead and turn over to page four. And what I wanna do is lay out for you, this actually came out of a Barner report several years ago. I never thought that George Barner was a great theologian, but he's a great sociologist. And so he's done a lot of survey work just to try to understand what's going on in the church and the church's culture. And so he crafted, and I expanded it just a little bit, but basically he crafted, well, if we were to try to boil down uh, the bare basics, the, the bedrock essentials of a Christian worldview, what would that look like? And basically he said there are eight tenets of it. So you see them right there. Number one, a belief in absolute moral truths grounded in the person and character of the one true God. A belief in absolute moral truths, truths that are abiding, unchanging. He said that would be one. Secondly, a belief that those absolute moral truths are revealed in and defined by the Bible, not by experience, not by reason, not by tradition, certainly not by culture, but by the Bible. All right. Three, a belief that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Amazingly, there was a survey taken a few years ago, and 19% of professed evangelicals, now these are people that were claiming, I have had a born-again experience by a faith encounter with Jesus. 19% said they believed Jesus sinned when he walked on this earth. 37% of all Americans think that Jesus sinned while he walked on the earth, all right? But no, a belief that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and bodily, historically, was raised from the dead. Number four, a belief that God is the all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present creator of the universe who sovereignly rules it today. We often refer to these as the three omnis. He's, all, he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Everywhere present, knows everything, all-powerful, all right? Number five, a belief that salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. So I would argue, not throwing a rock at anybody, that Roman Catholics have a defective Christian worldview. It is Christian in its overarching framework, but their work salvation, uh, I think, requires that we speak of it as a defective uh, Christian worldview, all right? Number six, a belief that Satan actually exists. There is a real devil, not just, we'll sometimes say, well, he's having to deal with the demon of alcohol, or he's having to deal with his own personal demons. Well, that's just a fancy way of talking about psychology. No, we're talking about there really was and really is, uh, there really was an evil, malevolent person that Jesus actually encountered in the wilderness when he was tempted, and that evil, malevolent individual with his horde of demons that are also real uh, are still active and real and vibrant in our day and time as well. Number seven, a belief that a Christian has the responsibility to share his faith in Christ with others. This is both the personal evangelism mandate and the world missions mandate, all right? And then eight, a belief that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. Now, we at your church and we at Southeastern uh, will use words like inerrant and infallible. And what we mean is not only is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings theologically, Bible is accurate in all of its teachings historically, philosophically, ethically. Even though the Bible is not a scientific textbook, when it speaks to issues of science, it speaks accurately and truthfully, all right? Well, here's what Barner pointed out. Only 4% of Americans embrace a basic biblical worldview way of thinking, 4%. Doesn't surprise me. But what did surprise me and broke my heart is only 9% of those who claim to be born again have a basic biblical worldview. In other words, they will affirm some of the eight things that we just talked about, but they will not affirm and embrace all of the things 
we just quickly talked about. So what I want to do then is expand. And by the way, I, I'm glad you mentioned a moment ago that Dr. Moeller was here uh, last year. He and I used to teach a, um, a uh, course in Florida, uh, How to Think Like a Christian in a Counter-Christian Culture for Student Leadership University. And he and I talked and worked, and he provided the basic foundation. I built on it a little bit. But he's the one where I got the idea of having foundational tenets for a Christian worldview. And he had, I think, seven uh, in his system, and I added three others to round it out. I don't think he would disagree with me uh, on that. So if you're going to think in worldviewish, Christian worldviewish categories, I believe these are basic bedrock fundamentals that, in my mind, are not negotiable on, on any level, all right? If you reject one, not saying that you're not a Christian, I'm just saying that you think inconsistently as a professing, quote, Christian, close quote. So what is the foundation number one? How do you think about God? Well, here's what I believe the Bible clearly teaches. We affirm there is one true God. He is personal. He's infinite and self-revealing. In fact, had he not revealed himself, we could not know him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. He is self-existent. He has his own existence within himself. That's why he's God. He is the only being like this. And he is sovereign, and he is eternal. In other words, nothing happened to this world that he does not ordain either by direct act or by allowance. In other words, God does allow certain things to happen that we would find hurtful, painful, uh, disappointing. We wish they didn't happen, but he does so for his own good ends and reasons that he hasn't told us about. So where would you get that idea? How about the book of Job? where Job's kind of ticked off about all the bad stuff that's happening to him. And so God says, well, all right, Job, let's just have a little Q&A here. Uh, where were you and I created everything? And at that point, Job was like, well, and he went on with other questions. And by the end, Job said, I'm sorry I ever questioned you. I repent. You're, fi you're, you're, you're infinite. I'm finite. You're eternal. I'm not. You know I don't. Has he revealed enough about himself that you can trust him where he hasn't? I would say yes. Any God that would sacrifice his son, in fact, if you said to me, all right, help me with this theodicy thing, well, ultimately, the ultimate theodicy answer is the cross. The greatest injustice in the history of creation was also the greatest and most wonderful act that ever took place as well. God can take the most horrible, despicable evil and turn it for good. And so I do believe that one way of answering the theodicy question is free will. God has created us as not automatons, robots, but we actually have free will to make free choices. And if you've got free will, then you're obviously going to have the ability to choose either good or bad, good or evil. And that God saw fit to give us, after all, we bear his image. And one of the aspects of bearing the image of God is that ability of decision-making. And so I'm grateful that he didn't make us robots, but when he made us with free will, he opened up then the possibility for, of course, it wasn't a possibility. He knew it would happen. He also knew it would cost him the death of his son to fix it, and he still did it. So I can live with that. And I don't have to have... All the answers, I have more than enough answers where I do know things to trust him in areas where I don't know things, okay? And this God, in terms of his character, is righteous, holy, loving, merciful, and redemptive. And yes, he is a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he is also one. What we often say is within the trinity, uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And yet they're all three God. And yet they exist as one, though they're three. 
As my good friend James Merritt says, if you deny the Trinity, you'll probably lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. So I will <laughs> stop at that. Number two, revelation. God has revealed himself both in nature and scripture, but supremely in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this written revelation of himself, the Bible, he has given us an inerrant, no errors, infallible, nothing that will lead us astray. He has given us an inerrant and infallible word of himself. The Bible indeed truthfully reveals to us knowledge about God, about the world, and ourselves. This word then is our sole authority for faith and life. I don't think many of you would disagree with me with one or two, so I'm going to move on because there are others where we need to spend a little bit more time. Number three, creation. The universe and all that exists was created by God alone through the power of his word, and as John Calvin beautifully said, the theater of his own glory. I love that phrase. He oversees what he made exercising his holy and wise government for moral ends. Now, I could chase creation a long ways, and I'm not going to, simply to say that I think this is fundamentally minimalistic of what you have to affirm about creation. Uh, at Southeastern Seminary, uh, we will not hire anyone. And let me always bring out, students don't have to believe like faculty do. Faculty, we are a very confessional institution, uh, required for our faculty. That's true for like Miguel and myself. Uh, we would never hire anyone that does not believe in the historicity of Adam and Eve because Jesus believed in the historicity of Adam and Eve. So it's not just a creation question, it's a Christology question, all right? But we don't fight over, and some of you may want to, but I'm not going to tonight, we don't fight over the age of the earth. We don't. I've got uh, young earth creationists on my faculty. Uh, I've got older earth creationists on my faculty. But all of my faculty affirm that there really was an Adam and there really was an Eve and there really was a fall into sin in Genesis 3. And that, I think, is not negotiable for, well, certainly not negotiable for teaching uh, at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, you may say, well, I hold to some type of mythical understanding of the first three chapters of Genesis. Well, I would find that troubling and, and problematic. I'm not saying that it makes you a non-Christian. Certainly would not say that. The Bible says to be a Christian, you have to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. It doesn't say you have to be a young earth, a six-day, 24-hour, 6,000-year-old creationist. It doesn't say that. You may be that, and that's fine, but make sure you realize the difference between what is at the essence of the gospel and what is the essence of a theological system, okay? But... I believe that God did create, as we use the Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. I don't believe that matter is eternal as an evolutionist who doesn't believe in God must affirm uh, because nothing plus nothing plus nothing is always going to give you nothing. And so it's irrational to think that somehow something came out of nothing that just will not philosophically or scientifically work. So either by faith... You believe in an eternal personal God, or by faith, you believe in the eternality of matter. But either way you go on that question, you're operated by what? By faith. Both have a faith beginning. So just keep that in mind. Number four, human beings. Human beings, male and female, are created equally in the likeness and image of God, all right? So all of us equally bear the image of God, and all of us fall into one category in terms, or the other, in terms of our gender. And let me just say this, though we now live in a day where the culture is adamant that you separate your sex from your gender, or your sexual identity uh, or your sex from your gender identity, the Bible makes no such distinction. Uh, your gender and your sex are the same thing. Now, you say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, that's fine. You're disagreeing with the Bible. Just realize that you can't find that distinction in the Bible. Sex and gender are synonymous in Scripture, and there are only two, male, 
female, all right? But just hang with me on that, all right? However, all humans are born sinners and in rebellion against God. Every single human being comes to this world with a sin nature. We're not born good. We're not even born neutral. We are born sinners. And, of course, any of you like me who have had children have experiential empirical verification that they are little sinners who are mean as snakes and bent in a direction away from the good. That's just who they are. And that's who, just like you and I are big sinners, they are little sinners. And they will sin both by nature and they will sin once they reach an age of moral awareness. They will sin and gladly sin by choice. Now, there's a beautiful balance in that affirmation. As imagers of God, we have a certain nobility that is not true for the rest of creation. So there is a sense in which it's good for us to have a sense of, of healthy uh, self-awareness and self-assessment uh, of who we are, okay? On the other hand, there's absolutely no place for arrogance or pride because you are a sinner rightly headed for hell apart from God's intervening grace. You see, it really helps to, to figure that out, kind of depending on your past. I, I grew up in a home where I received lots of affirmation, uh, a normal home, a healthy home, a happy home. And so my issue was never, uh, do you feel good about yourself? My issue was pride and, and, and arrogance. That, that, and God, God knows how to humble his children, but that, that was my issue. My wife, on the other hand, grew up uh, in a children's home. Alcoholic parents, uh, abandoned by her family. So she's had to struggle with the sense of feeling good about herself. I mean, why, why would my, my dad walk away from me? Why does my mother hate me? And that can be just damning to a, the psyche of a child. And yet by God's amazing grace, he entered into her life and became her perfect heavenly father and began to restore that. So her struggle was more on the, of, of having a sense of healthy self-worth. So we all fall in different perspectives here along the spectrum. So just try to keep that balance. Yes, on the one hand, I'm a very noble creature bearing the image of God. I'm not surprised when humans do amazing things because we're imagers of the great creator himself but at the same time there's no place for hubris or arrogance or pride because i'm a sinner by nature and by choice and apart from god's grace i have no hope so there's that beautiful balance that comes from a christian worldview way of thinking about humanity all right number five jesus christ jesus christ is the eternal Son of God. He is perfect both in His deity and also in His humanity. Two natures united in one person, so He has a 100% human nature, a 100% divine nature, yet the two natures come together, <clears throat> beautifully joined within the one person, Jesus Christ, all right? He lived a perfect, sinless life. He suffered and was crucified for our sins. He was buried and He rose again in bodily resurrection. You do know, for example, that the cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in a spiritual resurrection, but not a bodily resurrection. They deny the bodily resurrection. There are liberal theologians that will affirm some kind of spiritual resurrection while denying a historical bodily resurrection. But the Bible is like very, very clear. He was raised. The same body that went into the tomb was the same body that came out of the tomb, now glorified and transformed, but it was the same body, all right? Which, by the way, is the basis for our hope of our future body. Uh, you do all realize uh, this, this evening that your body is a good thing. It was, first of all, made by God. And not only is it a good thing made by God, God has a future for your body so that when you are resurrected and glorified, He is going to glorify you spirit, soul, and body. Because unlike many other religions in the world, Christianity has a very high view 
of the body because all of this material creation was made by a good God and therefore it's endowed with good things. The problem is design and direction. God's good design, unfortunately, now too often pursues bad, nefarious directions because of the invasion of sin. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus is basically the foundation for our hope of our bodily resurrection at the end of history. And yes, he ascended into the heavens, and yes, he will come again in glory. All of that is essential to a simple, minimalistic Christology, all right? Number six, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The battle cry of the 16th century Reformation. Salvation is God's work accomplished in us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, whose death on the cross accomplished the redemption of sinners. He died as our penal substitute. Now, that's so very important. You say, why? Because it's very popular today for theologians to push back on this idea. In fact, Al Mohler may have told you when he was at Southern Seminary as an MDiv student, one of the first classes he took was on the Gospel of Matthew with a professor named Frank Stagg, who on the first day of class said, let me be crystal clear, there will be no talk of any bloody atonement in this class. We don't believe in slaughterhouse religion. In other words, the song, What Can Wash Away My Sins? Nothing But the Blood of Jesus was off limits at Southern Seminary in many classes because they despised the idea. In fact, you have some feminist theologians who refer to Jesus' death on the cross as the quintessential example of child abuse. The compliant son being grossly abused by his father. And yet the Bible speaks of the great love that the Father has for the Son, the great love that the Son has for the Father, the fact that the whole transaction was something entered into joyfully and willingly, both by the Father who gave and the Son who came. And in His death on the cross, He was your substitute. He died in your place. He died the death that you should have died. He paid the penalty, penal that you and I should have paid. And in fact, though there are many beautiful aspects to the atonement, we could have done a seminar tonight on the, the, the beautiful metaphors and images of the atonement, uh, reconciliation, uh, example, uh, uh, propitiation, substitution, and so on. We could have talked about all of those, but I believe the foundation for all right understanding of the atonement is penal substitution that he died in our place and he paid in full the penalty of our sin. So he died as our penal substitute and was raised victorious over death in his, and I've said it now about three times, so obviously I think it's important, in his bodily resurrection. All right, number seven. The family is God's gracious and loving creation given for our protection, pleasure, and partnership. Sex is a good gift. In fact, I think it's a good gift from a great God. And it is to be enjoyed, but only within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It is intended for intimacy, pleasure, and the gift of children. Now, the world in which my grandchildren are going to grow up and live is going to be radically, radically, radically different than mine. You say, why do you say that? Well, because my grandchildren are growing up in a world where same-sex marriage has always been the law of the land. There's never been a time. My, my grandkids have never known a world where there wasn't a smartphone. That's just it's the way it's always been. They've never known a world where there isn't an iPad. They've never lived in a world where there wasn't a remote control. They don't even have the slice idea what an ice tray is. <laughs> and I keep going on for a long, long time about all sorts of things, but the main thing is they're going to grow up in a world where same-sex marriages, that's just the way it's always been. 
And yet you're going to be responsible to train and teach your children to hold in a loving, gracious, kind, but firm, non-compromising way. No. Two men coming together may be a marriage in the government's eye, but it's not a marriage in God's eye. They're not married. And two women coming together, they're not married. Because marriage in God's eye can only be between a man and a woman. And that is the only kind of marriage that God recognizes. And yes, if this were to be out in the highways and byways, bigot, uh, hater, you know, all the negative appetites that would be thrown in my direction. And I realize, folks, now listen to me, it matters how I hold this view. In other words, I can say the right thing, but if I say it in the wrong way, it's counterproductive. And so I need to make sure that even though I am very clear on what I believe and where my convictions lay, I'm going to recognize that those trapped in the world of sexual perversion and gender dysphoria, confusion, that could have been me. Because sin, I believe, runs deep all the way down to the DNA. In other words, when people try to say, well, there's just nothing biological going on with people that are into the trans world or the bi world or the homosexual world, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think there's a spectrum. I've always thought this. It's not new to me. And, and Al, again, Al Mo and I are very close friends. We worked together for eight years. We talked about this stuff all the time. Of course, most of the time, I was just listening from the fountain of knowledge and wisdom that he is. But he said, look, Danny, I don't think we understand just how pervasive the fall is and how deep it goes. And, yeah, there are, um, uh, you know, nurturing, uh, cultural uh, live context things that will shape and influence the way a person sees themselves. But I think we have to be honest that there are some people that on a spectrum, uh, from heterosexual to homosexual, they slide more over here. Why? Because of the fall. If they slide more over here, does that mean then we say, well, it's okay for you then because God made? No, God did not make you that way. God made you male and female, man, woman, boy, girl. But I understand because of the fall, we have all sorts of areas of life where we are confused. And sex happens to be one that goes to the very core and essence of who we are. So I need to recognize that I cannot compromise or back off even one whit on the clear teachings of Scripture and at the same time, I want to be a part of a church where people that are struggling with these issues will feel welcomed and loved. I was in a conference this week. Uh, well, actually, it was a faculty workshop. And um, a good brother that's uh, been pastoring in Chicago for years said, and he said he'd send me the link, that uh, he saw recently a study where something like 80 or 90% of people that live in the world of homosexuality, lesbianism, transgender, bis you know, the whole thing, uh, said they would go back to church. They would return to church if they believed they would be loved and not damned. So, well, they deserve to be damned. Well, so do you. So, I mean, you really want to go down that road? I mean, Really? And so we can hold the right view. We need to hold the right view. We need to be consistent in our affirmation of Christian truth. But it does matter how we do it. Have you ever had Rosario Butterfield over here? Most wonderful, precious uh, lady lives over in Durham. Uh, she was a full-blown flaming lesbian. Had her lesbian lover, ultra left-wing, atheist, radical, uh, eat no meat, take, use no air conditioning, I hope she used deodorant, but I don't know if she did. I mean, just, just, just as far out into left field, la-la. She makes Hillary Clinton look like a fundamentalist. And that's pretty hard to do. 
And uh, yet she was loved to Christ over about a three-year period by a Presbyterian pastor and his wife. They loved her to Jesus. And though they never compromised about what they believed, they loved her to Jesus. They didn't condemn her to Jesus. They loved her to Jesus, just like the woman caught in adultery. There's your model. There's your model. So we hold the right thing, but we hold the right thing in this area in the right way. Okay? A lot more we could say, but we'll just leave it at that. Number eight, government and society. Human society, government, culture, and nations were created by God and created by God for our good. Though all societies are marred by sin and limited in authority. I often make the statement, any government is better than no government. Even a bad government is better than no government because few things are more uh, destructive than anarchy. And so even a, even a communist government, as despised as they are in my way of thinking, is better than no government, okay? But all governments, including ours, uh, which functions uh, as a republic with democratic principles, is marred by sin and therefore limited in authority. Ultimately, I worship a king, not a president. I live under the cross, not a flag. Now, I am a very proud American, as proud as you can be. But I know that my ultimate allegiance is not to this land, but it is to a kingdom that is not of this world. And I fear too many Christians, especially in the Bible Belt South, get these things confused. And being a good Christian is the same thing as being a good Republican. And I know a lot of good Republicans that are going to bust hell wide open because basically they don't give a flying flip about my Savior, all right? And I have more in common, ultimately, with a Christian living in communist China than I do a very conservative, moral, political individual living in America who's not a Christian. So again, proud American, absolutely. Going to try to bring to bear my moral uh, convictions on the political process? Absolutely. I, I have voted in every single election that I could possibly vote in since 1976. And just to show you just how ideologically uh, convicted and uh, committed I am, even in 1976, living in Atlanta, Georgia, when Jimmy Carter ran against Gerald Ford, I voted for Gerald Ford. So why? Because I thought he would make a better president. And I could never under any circumstances, and I'm not a one-trick pony on this, okay, but I could never under any circumstances vote for anyone that is supportive of abortion. I can't do it. Now, I'm not going to. Now, you say, well, I've got other issues that are higher on the... Well, okay, that, we can talk about that, okay? What I want us to understand is government is good, but government is fallen, and government has limited authority, certainly in the life of a believer, all right? So we should seek to make the will of God supreme, not only in our own lives, but also in government and also in society. Because that's what Romans 13 commands us to do, all right? Which then rolls into number nine, the social order. The social order should be permeated by a Christian witness. Living out the ethics of Scripture, we are to be salt and light to a wicked and darkened world. Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you survey Scripture, it's very clear. We should oppose racism and greed and selfishness, and all forms of sexual immorality and pornography. A $12 billion industry in America. We should help the orphan. Praise God, there were Georgia Baptists that helped my wife and brought her to faith in Christ and loved on her well and made for me a great wife. We should help the orphaned, also the needy. Dare I say, the immigrant. And again, I don't want to get into a fight with you over that. I just know that as a Christian, I do need to care for their personal needs and first and foremost, their souls. Now, we can work out the government stuff as well. But I do care deeply for them. And if you don't, I'll just leave it at that. I'll let you fill in the blank. 
because we are commanded by our Lord to care for the needy, the abused, the aged, and the helpless. And thus we contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. And so there's a whole vortex of things we are involved in that are part and partial of our consistent Christian worldview. Then finally, history has a goal. We're, we're not reincarnationists like the Buddhists and the uh, Hindus. No, God will accomplish that history's going somewhere has a goal, and God will accomplish the fulfillment of all of His purposes according to the pleasure of His own will and to His own glory. Now, on the day of judgment, there is going to be a judgment day. God will judge all persons, and uh, His justice and holiness will be fully satisfied. Most of you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein hanged himself last week, and many people are bemoaning the fact that he escaped justice. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. And neither will we. We will all stand before God in our own righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ. I want the latter, not the former. But justice, the God of all the earth, will do right by every single human being. All right? Believers in Jesus Christ, the redeemed, will enter into everlasting life in a wonderful place called heaven, the new earth, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22. Unbelievers, the unrighteous, will go to everlasting punishment. It is everlasting punishment. We don't believe in annihilation, that uh, God uh, just sends into non-existence uh, the unbelieving. That would be, gosh, I'd like to believe that. Because I have this sentimental, sympathetic heart. But I don't have perfect justice. God does. And His Word is very clear. Hell is uh, conscious and everlasting, just like heaven is conscious and everlasting. And so if that's true, and it is, again, what a mandate for personal evangelism and what a mandate uh, for world missions. And so these, I think, are ten minimal affirmations of what would be uh, getting us started toward living out a consistent Christian uh, worldview way of thinking. All right, three minutes past when I wanted to stop, so that's not too bad. So I will give uh, Tom the last few minutes to any questions that the folks want to ask. <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Aiken. I thank appreciate you. it. It's... Uh... You gave a lot in a short amount of time, so thank you for being so concise and, and sharp. Okay, a couple questions for you. Uh, are you familiar with Ben Shapiro's book, The Right Side of History? No. Okay. Um, I'll give you the next one. As the modern secular age leaves a spiritual void, there seems to be an influx of the Eastern New Age Hinduistic worldview in our culture. How would you say Christians can best engage this worldview? That's a very good observation. I think it's absolutely true. Uh, uh, a vacuum uh, cannot long last. It will be filled by something. And so we've jettisoned the Judeo-Christian worldview. And actually, in America, it's being filled twofold. Uh, it's being filled with Islam, and it is being filled now with New Age uh, Eastern uh, spirituality. Uh, I think we have to number one, uh, better educate ourselves about what that worldview is like, uh, what they, how, the, how they understand ultimate reality, uh, how they understand all these categories. How do they think about God? How do they think about uh, religious authority? How do they view human beings? Uh, most of them because they buy into a reincarnational uh, worldview, uh, think much less of the human person than we do. After all, yeah, maybe it didn't work out so well this time, but maybe better next time. And really, I mean, that's what they think, which is why that um, uh, abortion, for example, we, we have, uh, what, 1.5 million abortions annually. India has over 20 million abortions annually. Now, there's 1.4 billion people, but still, uh, life in India is deemed of much less value than it is for us because we believe uh, it's appointed to man wants to die and after this judge there's not a, a do-over 
But in their worldview way of thinking, it goes over and over and over and over. So we have to, I think, Tom, acquaint ourselves with what they think. And I would say this. One of the things that allows us to have the opportunity to share the truth with these people is building relationships and building relationships by being good listeners. Most Christians are not good listeners. We're good talkers. We're not good listeners. And sometimes we think, well, if I listen to what they believe, I'm compromising. No, you're not. You're just showing them love. You're just showing them respect. And that's why to reach someone that's a Hindu, a Buddhist, or in some other type, Zen, uh, all of those Eastern religions, uh, you're going to have to build a relationship with them, and they're not going to come to Christ like that. That's just not going to happen. You're not going to share four spiritual laws, and boom, they believe. That, that, that's not possible because their whole conception of God and reality is so radically different than ours. I had a, a brother that I was working with doing mission work in uh, Thailand one time, just across the Laotian border, and uh, he was a Thai, and he said it took him five years to come to Christ. And I said, why? And he said, well, because the worldview of a Christian is so radically different than the worldview of a Buddhist. But let me ask you this question, and this will help put it in perspective. How many of you came to Christ the first time you heard the gospel? No, I didn't either. Uh, I heard it over and over and over and over and over, and then one day God took that truth and applied it to my heart. So why would we think someone that comes out of a complete, I mean, they have no knowledge of the Bible virtually at all. It's going to take time for us to build relationships, understand them, uh, honor them with respect, and then earn the opportunity to begin to help. And you're going to have to do what we call pre-evangelism. You're going to have to help them rethink how they look at God, how they think about salvation, and all of that before you can even get to the point where now you can make a gospel presentation that they would actually be able to uh, authentically comprehend. Okay, that just means then you've got to be willing to invest the time or it's not going to happen. Okay. Right, because I think you are forming categories for people. Absolutely. Because they have the same words, but they have different definitions yes. to them. And uh, the other thing we were talking about just a few weeks back, too, is just the incremental nature of, uh, you know, we're farmers, we're travelers. You know, in Scripture, all the metaphors kind of speak to a slower, slower pace. Which is so. something we're just totally unaccustomed to in our culture today. I mean, it's, just, it's the world we live in. Everything is so quick and so fast, but that's not the way conversion works. Right as I'm holding my smartphone. <laughs> uh, the next one would be, I'd like to hear Dr. Aiken speak to how we gracefully confront or correct other believers who are off base on their worldview. So when there are differences, maybe in the, one of the 10 things that you've given to us, um, were issues that are explicit in, explicit in Scripture, how we ought to respond. So maybe some attitudes and behaviors to help confront believers. Well, what I t try to do with people like that is like I did with my own children, raising them. And I'm not saying that to be condescending. I'm just saying I think it's a good model. I, I ask lots of questions. So maybe you, uh, James Sire in his book uh, on a catalog of worldviews, says he encountered a person one time who said, well, I'm a born-again Christian and I believe in reincarnation. Well, he didn't just come right out and damn them and say, well, you idiot. Uh, you can't do that. No, he said, well, he, he basically, well, why do you believe in, in reincarnation? And then he moved from there. Well, do you, can you show me somewhere in the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is God's word? Um, now, if they say no, well, now I've got another issue to deal with. But if they say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible reveals to us how I came to Christ. Okay, do you find reincarnation? Where did you find that in the Bible? Well, you know, I didn't really find it in the Bible. It's just, well, but what, so then you come back to what, so what's your authority? I mean, what, what's the foundational bottom line for how you make decisions and cultivate the way you think? Most people don't think, most people's worldview is unconsciously adopted. Most people don't think consciously about what is a worldview, what is my worldview, why do I have this worldview? Most people do not think like that. So you try to begin to prod and probe them to think about those questions. And just, again, be respectful. Realize for some people uh, it's, it's a long road. Now, there may come a point where you just realize, well, you know, you and I just are just going to disagree. You know, I've worked with you. And if some people just like to argue, I'm going to do that. And, I, and I'm pretty good at arguing. 
But after about twice, I'm done. I'm not going to waste. If you, if you just are cantankerous and uh, just want to have a fight, a verbal, I'm not. I'm not your. I'm not your guy anymore. I used to be like that. I used to be that guy. I'm not, not anymore. Life's too short, and I'm just not going to waste my time with that. But if you're genuinely searching and wanting to understand, I'll spend the rest of my life engaging you in, in conversation and, and listening to what you have to say. Good. Okay. How about how would you guide someone who works in an LGBT, a secular, gender fluid environment to work faithfully with a Christian worldview when a Christian worldview is considered bigotry? So you're not dealing with a believer who opposes you, but you're dealing in a cultural situation where you're seen as a bigot for holding to an exclusive view of scriptures or Jesus. I would go out of my way to love and serve those people. Just love them and serve them. But you're a bigot. Well, I, you know, I love you. you. You can call me names if you want, but that's not going to stop me from loving you, praying for you, and serving you. And so when they are hurting, I'm there. They're in the hospital. I'm there. They need a meal. I'm there. And I'm just going to love them to death. Just love them, love them, love them. You know, I believe Francis Schaeffer said toward the end of his life that he believed the greatest Christian apologetic for the, and he was, a, he was so prophetic in what he saw coming. He said the greatest Christian apologetic is love. So we just love them well. And I, don't think, and I think the problem has been we haven't. We haven't. We, we've made them, uh, we've ostracized them, we've judged them. I mean, you and I can think back <clears throat> 20, 25 years ago about how many pulpit, and I'll even say in my own life, I, I said some things from the pulpit that were right in content but absolutely wrong in spirit. And uh, Tim Keller's been so helpful to me here. Mm -hmm. Tim Keller always says, when you preach, imagine you're trying to reach your lost, secular, pagan child who's sitting on the front row. And imagine that child of yours is trapped in the LGBTQ world. Would you damn them or would you try to love them to Jesus? I think you'd probably try to love them to Jesus, which means you're not going to compromise your truth. But how you hold that truth and share that truth is going to be different. And I think we've, we've, we lost that, and I think we need to, to regain that. And, you know, the younger generation, I think, is better at that than the older generation simply because we live in a much different world. Their danger, though, is compromise. Mm -hmm. Their danger is compromise. Now, I, I was encouraged a few years ago, just as a, a side, but related, I was just curious. I had a class of about this many at the seminary in hermeneutics. And I said, I'm just curious. Um, how many of you in this room, as a minister, would perform a same-sex union? And not one hand went up, which encouraged me. I, I'm interested in what would happen if I asked the question today, just five years later. Because the world's a lot different today than it was five years ago. It just is. Especially if you think of me having a 22-year-old now, they were 17 five years ago, all right? So then I asked how many of you would attend a same-sex union? Of course, now it would be a same-sex marriage, but then it was just a union. And only two hands went up, and so I said, all right, tell me why. And we were not, no condemnation, just tell me why. And in both cases, it was I would want to keep open the door to, 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 to minister to them, love them, and share the truth with them. To which I said, I differ with you. I, I don't think I could do that, but I'm certainly not going to condemn you for doing that, especially given your heart and why you would do that. So I, I'm going to have to, we, we know we're getting a different kind of student now at Southeastern uh, that, again, because of cultural pressures, uh, we're going to have to work more intentionally to help shape their Christian worldview way of thinking in this area, but then help them know how to hold this worldview in a context where they are going to be called haters and bigots and narrow and, and all of those type of things. They just realize that's going to be part and parcel of their world. They're going to be persecuted far more severely than us. I, I don't think we're, of course, I could be wrong. I didn't think Tom... I thought same-sex, I've always thought that same-sex marriage would become the law of the land. I've always thought that, but I thought it would probably happen near the end of my life when I was in my, my 70s. I'm 62. It happened faster than I thought it would.
Do I think some level of persecution, not like it is in, you know, in Afghanistan or in North Korea, nothing like that. But do I think some level of persecution will come? Yeah. Uh, and it may happen sooner than I think. Um, so I just recognize that may be the case. And they just need to be prepared and ready. And that's up to us. Wouldn't you also agree, too, that I think our, the confidence we have in God's ability to save would allow us to be um, more incremental with our, with our friends in the transgender community. And, and we don't have to be as threatened and defensive. I think we get scared, we get defensive, and we, we make a lobby for truth, and we forget about the care and the, yes. of the soul of the person. I think the more comfortable we are with God, then we just continue to witness and continue to love, and I think it has a, a melting effect. Okay, how about this question? Are there any writers uh, and figures whose written works you feel brought about the landscape of confusion and immorality that we find ourselves in today? Who, who are some of the authors and the writers that have brought that about have caused this? the problem? Yeah, more secularism and yeah, confusion. You know, it, it is so now um, pandemic. I can't really think of any one person. I, I tell you a book, Al Mohler came out, I guess, last year uh, with a book. Uh, I'm trying to think now the title of it, where he basically goes back and traces uh, the whole development uh, of the gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual um, history, uh, going all the way back to the famous... Um, not nightclub, but place in New York where... Greenwich. Yes, where it all kicked off. And uh, talks about their, um, their strategies and, and their agenda and how it's just come perfectly to fruition. But then he also, like I would, makes a distinction between the homosexual uh, agenda and individual homosexuals, lesbians, bisexuals, transgenders go on down the line makes a distinction between the two, and I do too. So I can try firmly and graciously to push back on the agenda, but one-on-one -on -one, uh, engage individuals in a much more loving and incremental and patient uh, kind of a way. Uh, but he would also point out some of the key authors in that. I, I, I just, that, that's not my world. I don't know anybody that has helped us think well about this more than Al. I mean, it's, he is a true, I don't like to use the word cultural warrior, he doesn't like that, but a cultural uh, engager. Uh, that's, just, that's just who he is. And so his writings, I'd say, would be very helpful. In he, that he actually came and spoke about that. That was kind of the premise of the talk He's that he the gave. Best. There's also a book called Intellectuals by Paul Johnson, and he traces the intellectual influence of these uh, philosophers over the past mm -hmm. few hundred years, and both their impact on culture but also the disintegration of their own lives. It's a wonderful book in terms of not just explaining why we think the way we think, but it also shows the holes in their life that they were not consistent with the very philosophies that they espouse and that we've embraced they didn't live out. So it's a yes. very, very good book. Well, that's it for the questions. Okay. Their dessert is next, but can I give thanks to God for you? Absolutely. You've been very, very thanks. accessible, very understandable. And um, I think we just love... Clear, in, in a world where truth is compromised, you speak very clearly on issues, so it's well, helpful you. for us. Thank so thank you. Let me pray for you.